So I'm a real sort of stickler to putting neglect on the map in so many ways because it's this invisible kind of silent trauma that can easily be not noticed because it's all about what doesn't happen instead of what does happen. The NeuroFeed Podcast. How is clinical neurofeedback transforming lives? We talk with therapists, researchers, and home users. From the intersection of neuroscience and therapy, these interviews tell stories of discovery, empowerment, and learning to thrive. Today's guest is Ruth Cohn, MFT, CST, BCN. Ruth Cohn has been practicing neurofeedback since 2009, with the good fortune of mentoring with Seaburn Fisher the entire time. Having studied the dynamics of trauma and neglect, she has worked with survivors, their intimate partners, and families since 1998. She's a certified sex therapist, trained and certified in a number of somatic therapies. She's also author of three books and working on a fourth. In 2011, she wrote Coming Home to Passion, Restoring Loving Sexuality in Couples with Histories of Childhood Trauma and Neglect. In 2021, she released Working with the Developmental Trauma of Childhood Neglect, Using Psychotherapy and Attachment Theory Techniques in Clinical Practice. Most recently, in March of 2022, she completed Out of My Mind, Late Night Contemplations About Trauma and Neglect, and she is now writing her fourth book, A Layperson's Guide to Understanding the Trauma of Neglect. So uh, I wonder if we can maybe just start asking some questions about um, how, uh, what in the most general sense, your experience or what you would say about how neurofeedback has transformed the way that you do psychotherapy. Okay. Well, I first got interested in neurofeedback back in 2009, partly because after close to 40 years of working with childhood trauma, I've always been looking for ways to speed up the recovery process because the insult of trauma is bad enough, but then to spend years and decades trying to recover seems like the height of injustice. So I'm always looking for ways to streamline that healing process. So neurofeedback is the the most direct, quickest thing I've found yet. It's not a substitute for psychotherapy, but it's an essential adjunct to psychotherapy. It's like two wings of the same bird. You can't have one without the other. And the other thing I like so much about neurofeedback for trauma is so many people that I see, and I see a lot of traumatized people of all ages, Many of them are so tired of telling their story. Mm -hmm. The thing that's so wonderful about neurofeedback is you don't have to talk. And often the neurofeedback provides material, the material bubbles up in ways that it hasn't been available before, but you don't have to come in and unpack your miserable story that you've told 
too many times and you hate remembering it yourself, you can come in, sit down, look at the screen, completely different from what you're working on, and lo and behold, you get better. And that is a real sell to a lot of people. I will say that for whatever unknown, unknowable reason, the West Coast has been very slow to catch on to neurofeedback. So where it's much more prevalent in the East, at least as far as I know, in here in the Bay Area, which is generally so progressive, there there isn't much. There is hardly anyone. And when I first started practicing neurofeedback in 2009, nobody knew what it was. I started writing articles about it in local um, in local periodicals that I could get into. And what I did was to my um, existing clients, I said, try this. I'll give you 20 sessions for free. If you like it, you can continue paying. But if you don't like it, we'll just discontinue. And for about the first three months, I was working about 20 hours a week for free doing neurofeedback, but pretty much everyone was sold. So that's kind of the long answer to how I got interested in neurofeedback. It's very much changed both how I think and how I work. The way it's changed how I think is when I, when I even when I'm not working, but in my life in general, whenever I, I pay attention to somebody and, and listen to them and watch them, I've kind of got two tracks running in my head. One of them is I'm I'm being present with what they're saying, what they're doing, and all of that. And the other one is kind of turning off the volume and tuning into arousal. And it's a different way of thinking than I had before. I'm very aware of, I mean, in trauma, I was always aware of hyperarousal and numbing. And those were the swings that we knew about in in relation to trauma. And what I've learned to do is really notice the arousal levels in people. And so, and I work a lot with couples who get into these very intense, passionate interactions where they're both activated, they're both in their trauma, child, childhood trauma material and the frequencies in the room are like off the charts. And I start thinking about what's going on in their brains and what the frequencies are. And very often, I know the only way we can continue this work is if they're doing neurofeedback also. So that's kind of how it's changed my thinking and my work. And so I would say every client that I they possibly can. I at least offer neurofeedback. Some of them do agree to do it. Some of them who are couples, I'll say, we cannot continue unless you add neurofeedback. And so um, it's become very much a staple of my life and of my work. That's really wonderful to hear, Ruth, um, and to hear your journey through it. Uh, just um, sounds like incredible work. It's really cool. And one thing I will say about myself is I feel very confident in myself as a psychotherapist. 
I feel very wobbly about myself as like a science technology person. And the thing about neurofeedback that's really challenging is there's a lot of science and technology involved. So that's been a very steep learning curve. And probably when I first started um, training in neurofeedback in 2009, when I took my very first training, for about a year or two, I read nothing but books about neurofeedback. That's all I read, just read and read and read and read and read, because I wanted to learn as much as I could. I don't know how much really stuck, but um, what I know is I'm really good at thinking in terms of arousal. I'm good at combining that sort of arousal thinking with um, psychotherapy. I'm not that good at figuring out like frequencies and, and amplitudes and you know, things like that. So I need a lot of guidance around that. And I think we all find our strengths and weaknesses in neurofeedback and then find the right people to help us. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about the attuned neurofeedback, the arousal model that Seaburn has really pioneered is you don't have to be a technology or technical expert when it comes to the EEG. Um, you can really feel be deeply ingrained in the clinical piece and and manage the technology and and get really far with that. Okay. You know, one thing I wanted to say, and this is kind of a sidebar, but I can't help but mention it when you talk about the arousal model, is one of the great pioneers of the arousal model, probably the mother of the arousal model, was Sue Othner. And authors are the um, two of the, you know, first people that really put neurofeedback on the map. And one of the things that I found so distressing when I came into the field was um, how fragmented the neurofeedback field is in their different kind of camps. Anyway, um, what I'm getting to is what I just learned the other day is that Sue Othmer just passed. Yeah, I saw that as well. Is so sad because she she really gave us the arousing model, and she was a leader. And I only once did a training with the authors way back in the beginning when I didn't even know anything about the different sort of fractured camps of neurofeedback. Yeah. And I went to Los Angeles and I did a training with them, and it was um, it was so interesting, and that was my one experience of the Ochners. And so I'm I'm very sad about her death, and I think she was only 79 or something, which seems very young to me. Yeah. And it, I think one of the other pieces about the neurofeedback field is, besides being fractured, um, you know, a lot of our leadership is, is aging. Um, and the next level is really, you know, not there, you know, in terms of being... Uh, on the scene and ready to, I mean, I think there are people there, but in terms of being known and acknowledged um, to sort of take the helm, um, we need a lot more of those folks to to be out and present and training because our, you know, Ed's getting up there, Seaburn's up that, you know, all of those folks, you know, um, that that's the other challenging thing is the originals are now quite, you know, getting ready to be past retirement. Yeah, and thankfully they're all staying with us, you know, quite a long time, partly because um, neurofeedback is so enlivening and keeps us young longer. And I have 
couple of really crazy stories about that. But um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm kind of in the in-between generation. I'm not quite Seaburn's age, but I'm not quite the younger generation's age. I'm kind of in that in-between. So I feel a real responsibility to both hone what I've got and also really bring along the the next the next generation like you <laughs> working on it so in that in that vein uh ruth i wonder if you could describe when you get a new client and uh i'm wondering do, do people come to see you because you do psychotherapy and neurofeedback or do you do you sometimes get uh folks who are coming in for counseling and then you introduce them to neurofeedback. And what is that process like? What do you, how do you describe neurofeedback to them? Okay, that, very good question. I think most of the people come to me not for neurofeedback, but for psychotherapy, mostly because neurofeedback isn't really that well known about out here. The people who seek out neurofeedback generally are people who are clinicians who have had some kind of trauma training in the East and maybe heard about me from Trauma Research Foundation or some of the kind of East Coast trauma hotbeds, and they come to me for neurofeedback from that direction. Um, so most people, when they come to me, they, they have trauma, and sometimes they have trauma and neglect, and they've read my my um, book because my first book, um, Coming Home to Passion, is about sex. And because so many traumatized people have sexual problems, what I imagine is these frustrated people late at night start surfing the net, looking for information about how can I have sex with my partner? My partner won't have sex with me. And then they find my book, then they read my book, and then they look for me. And so, um, I've gotten a lot of people who come to me for trauma and sexuality issues. And so I tell, once I've gotten to know them a little bit, depending on sort of what their circumstances are and what their um, history is in terms of psychotherapy, I'll begin to tell them about, I mean, I have a lot of experience. I, you know, I base, if you read The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel's book, which is everyone has to read that. Um, it's kind of like the um, story of my career because everything Bessel recommended, I would go out and train in and get certified in. So we got EMDR, so I learned EMDR. We got sensory motor psychotherapy, so somatic experiencing. I went out and learned all that. Then when I learned about neurofeedback, everything else kind of got set aside because that was it for me. So when people come to me and say, you know, I've been working on my trauma for so long, I'm so sick of it. I'll tell them, well, the best thing I know to speed things along is this. And then I'll talk with them about neurofeedback. And some of them, they're really curious. And some of them, it sounds like snake oil and they don't want to go near it. So you can feel out the person. And like I said, there are some cases where there's so much arousal in the room in the course of the work that I'll say, you know what? I can't work with you unless we add neurofeedback, and then we do. And so there are lots of kind of logistical sort of accommodations we have to make. Um, I work a lot in 90-minute sessions, 
And with a 90-minute session, you can do neurofeedback and psychotherapy comfortably. And um, so if we can do that, that can work very well. And so that's often how I end up kind of mixing it up. But some people, I'll just tell them straight up, you know, if we don't add this, I, I don't think I can help you. So I don't know if that really answers the question. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. Go ahead, Leanne. Thanks. Um, I one of the questions that occurred to me, Ruth, as you were talking, because I also come from an attachment background. I work a lot with adopted adolescents and um, those who've experienced early developmental trauma, um, and integrating the attachment perspective. You, Seaburn does a beautiful job of this um, too. But I'm curious your thoughts about how you integrated your attachment background into the neurofeedback. Oh, that's such a good question, Leanne. I'll tell you, and this is something that's so important to me, and I know Seaburn says it all the time, and that is psychotherapy without neurofeedback is necessary and insufficient. Neurofeedback without psychotherapy is necessary and insufficient. You have to have both. And what I personally um, do a lot in this work with trauma and neurofeedback is really make use of the therapeutic relationship. So we're dealing with the attachment piece um, a lot through the therapeutic relationship. And I learn a lot about what their difficulty is, about connecting, attachment, um, through how they relate to me. And if we're really able to um, to work with that piece in the context of the neurofeedback, it is so interesting. And I've developed this sort of way of thinking, which I call, in my own little lexicon, kind of the expanded therapist screen. In neurofeedback, what we know is that the therapist is looking at one screen, which shows the brain waves, and the client is looking at another screen, which is the game and the reward. And there's another screen that the therapist has, which is so important with trauma and especially with neglect. And that is your therapist screen is your own body, your own emotions, your own kind of sensory experience, meaning what images pop into your mind, sounds, songs. I get songs popping into my head all the time or images. That therapist screen, Seaburn talks about energy fields. And there's a way that stuff gets communicated in the field between the client and the therapist, both during the neurofeedback training and during the psychotherapy part, where the therapist, if they're paying attention to their own internal therapist screen, gets so much information about the client's history. And it's very interesting. I mean, this is probably going to sound kind of woo-woo to you or to some people, but I'll get these images in my mind, like somebody will be talking and... I will see in my mind the image of an infant alone in a crib, it's kind of flailing in the dark. And then, um, of course, people don't remember that stuff, 
but I'll ask them, what do you know about what was going on in your mother's life when you were an infant? What did any, and then I'll just listen because sometimes her father died or her husband left or they didn't have enough food or she was depressed or she was angry or she wasn't there. And whatever was showing up on my internal screen is some kind of a window into this unremembered material that the neurofeedback is loosening up. So it's this very interesting sort of feedback loop between the neurofeedback, the psychotherapy, the client, the therapist, all these different kind of dimensions of communication. I hope that doesn't sound too woo-woo. I think neurofeedback has to exist somewhere between the science and the art. And and you're talking about that exact place where the, the two sort of meld together and, and make a really uh, beautiful uh, healing environment, more so than either one can do by themselves. And what this means, Leanne, is that the therapist really has to take care of their own instrument. Meaning, I have to take care of myself. I have to be regulated. I have to have some semblance of balance in my life, which I'm not that good at. But um, we have to keep the instrument tuned so that what we get on the internal therapist screen is reliable and not our own triggered material. It's really so, Having neurofeedback as a tool really absolutely, you've got one of the strongest tools possible to help with that. Absolutely, and it's essential. We have to train ourselves. One of the things that really inspires me about your teaching style, Ruth, is that you uh, make um, very complex sort of uh, subjects and and topics accessible to people who don't. Who have who are not neuroscientists, who are not you know steeped in like the research evidence and all that kind of thing. And I wonder, I wonder if I could ask you to to um, for for a way of looking at, for example, the one of the things that that comes up sometimes is this the sort of neurophysiological side. You know, the 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 way that uh, the arousal model describes what's happening for somebody's nervous system. And how neurofeedback allows access to that to the the psychotherapy, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that you know how how it is that by doing neurofeedback, when you say to someone, unless we do neurofeedback, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to help you. It, what I hear is there there is some some process of change in addressing your arousal level that's going to allow us to actually do psychotherapy and make progress in a therapeutic in a therapeutic kind of way. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, way back in 1996, um, Bessel's team or some group of people that was working with Bessel did this research that kind of changed my whole life and changed my whole way of kind of communicating with clients about this. In fact, um, there's a brain scan image that I made in those days. We didn't have 
like Xerox machines where you could make copies at home. So I had this scan made into like a huge poster size, um, you know, picture that I would show to everyone who came through my office. And what it was, was there was this research that they did where they took a number of um, traumatized people and they got their trauma script and they um, read back the trauma to the person. The person went into full blast trauma activation and they put them in the scanner and they took pictures of their brain. And this scan is so, I mean, it's worth thousands of words. Because what you see in the scan is you've got the, the outline of the brain and the front part of the brain, which is where the thinking and speaking parts of the brain are, is completely dark. Nothing is firing. And the only thing that's all lit up in bright colors is the right limbic area and the rest of the brain is completely dark so you look at this picture and you see you cannot speak or think when you're in a trauma state all you've got is the fight flight response you are running from a tiger so if i try and talk to you use logic reason when you're running from a tiger, forget it. You're not, you're in speechless terror. You're not gonna hear anything that I say. You're not gonna be able to speak to me. You're, you're like a deer in the headlights and you're gone. So what, how do we bring this person back down? So that the so that the left side of the brain where the thinking and the speaking are, begins to come back online and that's where we need something else but talk therapy to get there because i always say insight is interesting it doesn't change a thing so if you're in your prefrontal and we talk reason and logic then you go into your trauma state and you're running from a tiger forget it we're not going to get any traction at all we lost leanne where did she go are you with us, Leanne? Sorry, my dog decided to meet there you in the room. He heard about the tiger and he was... I hope you weren't running from the tiger. So um, I begin, to, I show these pictures and I've got them everywhere. I've got that really big one that is so worn out. I can hardly use it anymore. I've got another one on the wall. I've got them everywhere. But um, it's a really worthwhile image to have because it's a it's a generic you know human brain it's not you're not weird this is the trauma brain and we have to have some other way of getting there and beginning to bring this part back online one thing i'm also able to tell them and this is really helpful is when they begin to describe their experience after a certain amount of time has passed where there's clearly a part of them that's inside the experience and a part of them that's outside being able to see that they're in it. It's what the psychoanalytic people call observing ego. 
when we start to get a little bit of observing ego, that means the prefrontal is little by little starting to light up. And I tell them the way it works with brain circuitry, it's like you've got a groove in a dirt pile down a mountain where when it rains, if you've got one groove, the rain always goes down that groove and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, turns into a stream and a, and a rivulet and a creek and a river. When we begin to make another crack in that hill and we begin to use that one sometimes and it becomes grooved a little deeper and deeper and ultimately it becomes like maybe an alternate pathway and you're at a crossroads and you can go this way or go that way and you can choose to go that way and then little by little it becomes predominant. We never get rid of the original rut but we can groove the new one deeply enough that it becomes our new default. That's what we're trying to do with neurofeedback. So it's very graphic, it's very simple, visual, because I'm not a science head myself. And the way I started really learning these concepts myself, and this goes way back, I mean, into the 90s, into the days when we had cassette tapes, and that's really a long time ago. <laughs> and I go to conferences, especially Bessel, because he's such a good speaker, or he always has been, and I would buy the tapes, and I would listen to them over and over and over and over again until I got it, and I would learn hippocampus, the filing system of the brain, and I would begin to sort of pair these concepts together until they would stick in my kind of concrete brain. And then little by little, I became able to, you know, remember the hippocampus is the filing system of the brain, and I could explain it that way. So making it really simple for myself has helped me to make it simple enough to communicate about and also to sell that people become interested in at least trying it. Yeah, I think, Ruth, how you describe it is just, it's beautiful. And um, I think when you come to clients and say, I'm with you, I know you, I, I hear you, and I, I believe in your suffering and I want to help and I know the path forward. Um, and you can explain it in such a way. Most of the time, it might take a few attempts at it, but most of the time they're like, you know what? I've been doing the same thing with psychotherapy by itself for so long. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm willing to give it a try. And and that's all you need is that little bit. Um, and that usually, you know, once that door opens, it's such a it's such a wonderful journey from there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I always tell the the story of one of my clients where um, they would tell stories about things that would happen in their lives. And it was very hard to understand what had happened because they couldn't tell it in a sequential order. It would have tangential details that were related to other things. It was very confusing. And you'd be left going, I know you're upset and in pain, but I can't figure out exactly why. Neurofeedback comes in, all of that work suddenly there's a story that I get that it's start to finish. It's in order. It's organized in a way that I can go, aha, I get it. This happened. You felt this, therefore this. And that experience of them to be seen and heard fully for what's really their experience 
Um, I've never seen anything except neurofeedback make that difference. And the interplay between your presence and the neurofeedback and the way that works together and the encouragement and the care and the holding, it supports the neurofeedback. You get these wonderful feedback loops between the psychotherapy and the neurofeedback that they both sort of enhance each other in a way that things really kind of, you know, speed up. And that's what we want. Exactly. So what one thing I've heard uh, we've talked a lot about before, uh, Ruth, is about the importance of the eager community in your in your process and in your journey. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that has meant uh, for for the process of being a uh, you know a mental health professional. Sure, sure. Well, one thing I have found about neurofeedback people is. They tend to be, you know, not your um, kind of boxed in, you know, um, how to put it. Because I've always said neurofeedback are kind of quirky, interesting, creative people who are willing to work outside the box, do some books. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting crowd and kind of adventurous willing to try new things. Um, some of them are more science-oriented. Some of them are more kind of creative um, arousal model kind of people. And there tends to be a warmth. And because um, it's always been kind of a stepchild in the psychotherapy world, it's, it's not very competitive from my experience. So um, I've really enjoyed... Um, the interaction with the people, although once again, being out here in the in the West, I've been pretty isolated. So I've had to really kind of connect as much as I could with people in the East. One thing I I I always say about everything is in order, I always say every little bit of success I've ever had at anything comes from the following principle. You get the best consultation money can buy. You tell them everything, and you do what they're told. What you're told, and that's what I learned to do with neurofeedback. And I had the good fortune to get in with Seaburn back in 2009, and I try and practice that principle with her. And um, but finding the people whose work is really interesting and who you really respect and admire and kind of want to emulate, and you listen to them and in eager now and i'm so grateful to lars for this one of the great blessings of the pandemic has been eeg learn and that is where we can actually get webinars where people in the community are like visiting me in my kitchen and talking to me and i can listen to them over and over and over again until i get it and i do because i wake up in the wee hours of the morning and I'm doing all kinds of things. And so I turn on my, you know, webinar replays and I can listen to, you know, some of the smartest people in the world talking about neuroscience and neurofeedback and the brain and all different kinds of things. And um, that's another way that we really support each other. So I thank you, Lars, so much for that. It's been a huge contribution 
to my life and my work, which means a lot of people's lives. And um, we in the process of doing uh, neurofeedback and therapy with folks. Um, one of the questions that often comes up uh, when when folks are you know uh, contacting us and they're wondering is this something that I should get into is how long does it take? Um, and you know different clinicians have different takes on that thing. How does how long does it take to get in shape? <laughs> um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what well, is there is there a point in the process when you're working as a as a counselor or a therapist with someone when you decide well you're you're good or or do the do the clients decide I want to keep doing this because it's continuing to improve my life like how does how does that all work? It's both, Lars. It's both what you just said, and often um, it is the client knowing that they've gotten to where they want to get, at least for right now. Sometimes it has to do with logistics or finances or, um, or you know, priority changing in their lives. But generally it has to do with where have they gotten to in their lives. Some people are just so curious. They don't know what could happen next. And I swear... I've had some crazy results from neurofeedback that I've never been able to replicate in anybody else, but things that have spontaneously happened to me where, you know, when I was in my 40s, my hair was starting to turn gray. I started doing alpha theta neurofeedback and my hair stopped turning gray. Both my sisters have gray hair. My hair stopped turning gray. And the more I did neurofeedback, all the, all the gray went away. That was about 15 years ago. I've never colored my hair. It made all the gray hair go away. So go figure. I don't know how that happened, but it, I can't attribute it to anything but neurofeedback. So you never know what you're going to get. I have a couple of other stories like that. I won't tell them here because I don't want people to start calling me up to make their gray hair go away because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to replicate it. With anyone else, but I I know it happened to me, and you don't know what you're gonna get when you do a lot of neurofeedback. Yeah, I love that, and and it brings up this other piece, which is that if if um you know as as I hear from you know not being a neurofeedback practitioner myself, a clinician, um, but hearing from lots of people about how there are these somewhat surprising changes in folks who have struggled for a long time. Um, and I think, and, you know, one of the things that I, I think Ruth Lanius has talked about is that part of the challenge is how someone gets comfortable with this new world, right? That, so so the, the challenge actually changes from how do I cope with, with this threat response that I feel every day to how do I cope with this new life in which I don't have a fear response, where I don't have a threat response. Can you talk a little bit about what that process of like helping clients to acclimate to success? It's very interesting. And often there's a kind of a grief process where there's a grieving for all the lost time. And there's also kind of a grieving as they kind of say goodbye to a part of themselves 
that has suffered so much. And also there are questions of entitlement, like, wow, um, how do I, how am I so lucky that I get to have this? And even almost like survivor guilt about being able to kind of have a different kind of life. And I know that that's been true for me, having to transition from really feeling like a have not to feeling like a have in so many ways that there's a lot of identity shifting involved, which is where good psychotherapy comes in. And I, I have to say, I'm reminded of this quote from Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> She's so profound. She says, I've been rich and I've been poor. And rich is better. <laughs> and there's a way that this transformation is, it's very mixed. And we may have siblings who don't do the work. And we really see the difference between we have this similar background, not identical, but similar. And I have this great life and they don't and sort of this guilt, and maybe they don't want to come along. Maybe they don't want to do the work that I've done. But there's a, a lot of good psychotherapy required in making these identity shifts. It's not, it's not easy. And one thing I always say to people, which certainly was true from my experience and continues to be, is the world without fear is a different place. It's a very different place. And I feel so privileged that so much of the fear that ran me for much of my life is really absent. Or when I am fearful, I, I know how to work with myself or I know where to go to get someone to help me with that. It's a good question. These are important identity questions and identity goes through a lot of changes with this with this neurofeedback work. Ruth, I feel like that that ties into you know I'm sure you've heard it from Seaburn that um, it's sometimes good and often good that neurofeedback is slow in a lot of ways. It's once a week or twice a week and little shift and little shift and little shift because for someone whose whole world, like you were saying, existed around fear, um, it, it would sort of be like pulling off their you know suddenly they can see tomorrow um, instead of being able to see a little bit at a time. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a, sometimes the complaint uh, is slow. And one of the things I say to my clients, she'd probably say something similar is for better or worse, it's slow. And that's actually, so a lot of times it's a good thing because we can slowly adjust to, to how our world is shifting because a big shift would feel like an earthquake and that's very uncomfortable. That's right. That's right. And I live in earthquake country and they just had this enormous earthquake in Turkey. Yeah. And it it's devastating when things are just upheavaled so fast. Yeah. The only group I find actually does quite well with, with fast change is children. They oh. seem to they seem to absorb it quite quite well, I think, because their lives change so rapidly all the time. Yeah. And they're Patterns are not so deeply grooved yet. Exactly. They they do a little, they do much better with faster change and they, they seem to just kind of take it in very rapidly, which is, 
I'm sure one of the reasons I work with children is because I, I hope to have them not get to adulthood with these patterns. That's great. I don't work with kids and I really admire that you do. It's a lot of fun and a lot of headaches at the same time. Better. I bet. Ruth, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, you've, you've, you've actually done neurofeedback and psychotherapy for over two decades. Am I right? Is it? Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you looking back on how, you know, on your learning process and, and all of the, the different stages, I mean, the field has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. And when, what you would say to someone to a therapist or a counselor who's looking or a social worker who's looking at, maybe I should start doing neurofeedback. What, what would your, you know, what would you say about that? And what would your recommendations be for, for someone who is looking at that? Good question. Um, well, what I would tell them if they're trauma therapists and they probably wouldn't be talking to me if they weren't, <laughs> um, I would say that basically I studied every modality that I could to help people with trauma to recover more quickly because I've always had this really strong sense of injustice about how long it takes to recover for some, from something that wasn't your fault in the first place. Okay. So anything I can do to speed this miserable process up, I've always been interested in doing. And that I studied everything I could, everything I knew of, and neurofeedback is the best yet. And since I've learned neurofeedback, I really haven't looked back and mostly don't do those other things anymore. And when people call me and say, I see you do EMDR, I say, well, tell you the truth, I'm really not up to date. I haven't done EMDR much in a long time. This is what I offer. So to psychotherapists, I say, you know, the, the most um, expeditious, the most kind of speeding up of the process that I know is neurofeedback. And the, the other part of your question, Lars, is I think you were, you were asking me something like this, or maybe I was thinking you were asking me, how long does it take to get proficient in neurofeedback? And I would say, well, probably my whole life. Yes. And it takes a whole lifetime before I feel like, yeah, I think I'm getting it. And um, as soon as you get it, the, tech, the neuroscience will change and we won't get it and we'll have to learn new things. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, it's never ending, never ending. One thing I also have learned the hard way, and it's hard to say no to people, but I've learned that when therapists send me a client of theirs for neurofeedback, I won't do it. If they're in psychotherapy with someone else, and they want to come to me only for psych or for neurofeedback, I'm not the person. I work with both in in one package. And the um, combination where I'm somehow trying to work with another therapist, it splits up the transference. It complicates it way too much. I don't like to spend a lot of time outside of sessions talking to another practitioner about a client. All the way around, it's it it's 
it's not a good bet. So I won't do it anymore. I tried too many times and it's frustrating. The client is the one that loses out. So if they're really attached to a therapist that they're with, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't do it because it's not, it's not effective. No, that's great. That's awesome. Um, and uh, on an entirely different sort of track, um, we've talked before a little bit about epigenetics, and I get curious about where people are at. As you know, I live in Florida, and things seem to be changing in concerning ways fairly rapidly here. And I know you've talked openly before about your family and and sort of what, you know, what your background is. I'll let you talk about sure. what part you want to say. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that means for folks with trauma or neglect histories to be in a, a public uh, political situation that, that is the way that it is. You bet. Very good question. Um, I come, my parents are both, were both, they're both past now, um, survivors of the Nazi Holocaust. So I grew up kind of in the shadow of the Nazis. And so I am a product of the intergenerational transmission of trauma, all kinds of ways, both what I inherited through their um, kind of emotional and their psychological um, kind of bearing and behavior and treatment of me, but also, you know, perpetration, which was kind of the unwitting, once again, intergenerational transmission of trauma. So I'm kind of like a double winner in terms of being a child of trauma. Now, I became a political activist before anything. When I was in college, it was really my first love and my first career, um, so to speak, to become a full blast political person. And as I've come, as many twists and turns in my journey, but um, I've reached a point in my journey now that further I go along my path, the more I realize that trauma and social justice are inseparable and that we can't begin to treat trauma without treating the larger system of intergenerational transmission and perpetration and injustice, all kinds of ways. So it's it's a really complicated question, like where to begin. It's like this hydro with so many heads. It's like you lop off one head and you've got seven more over there. So we need each other we need different people that kind of focus in different areas but we can't ignore people's family histories people's where they live what their day-to-day -day community is or is not what they experience in the world in their lives in terms of race in terms of gender in terms of sexual orientation in terms of age um, all of it, we can't ignore any of that when we're dealing with trauma and neglect. And so many of these groups are these mass neglected populations. 
So I'm a real sort of stickler to putting neglect on the map in so many ways because it's this invisible kind of silent trauma that can easily be not noticed because it's all about what doesn't happen instead of what does happen. So it's like we have to learn to see what isn't there, which is once again the therapist's scream. Beautiful. That's a complicated answer to your question. That's so very Ruth. I, I, uh, it makes me think that, um, you know, one thing that we didn't really touch on at all is the specifics of addressing, you know, a history of, of neglect with neurofeedback and therapy. So that's its own, um, you know, hour of, of, of wonderful. Oh, it's emotional. It's, it's the, it's its own like 10 hours. <laughs> okay, so, right. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, it's good you didn't ask me about that. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, big discussion that I'm more than happy to talk about more, and that's this next book is really going to expand on. Right. Okay, great. Um, I wonder, is there any, are there any other things that you want to make sure that people know about? Uh, we'll put the link to uh, to your website, ruthconmft.com. Um, and you do this amazing blog. Um, we were just talking about it the other day here at the house, like how you uh, are able to to really, you know, address diverse questions, and you do it every single week. Um, it's it's just very impressive. So, um, if folks want to read some of that stuff, it's it's available on your website. Sure. Are there other things? Send us your um, send us your email address. And we will put you on the list, and then you'll get your you'll get the blog in your email every Tuesday. It comes out every week. And when we were talking earlier about the Nexlin device, which I which I use for sleep, and one thing that's so amazing about the Nexlin device, which I was telling Lars earlier, I have very mixed feelings about, but um, it's a wonderful vehicle for sleeping. And one thing that I noticed about Nexlin is it does something to my brain where I wake up from my Nexlin sleep and I've got a whole blog fully formed. That's pretty cool. It is. So it's not like it's written, but it's kind of constructed. So the Nexlin is a big help to me. So yeah, I'm happy to share the blogs. And we're also now making little paperback books of the blogs that are available on Amazon. And um, so people can look for them there if they want to have a hard copy. That's great. Thank you. And uh, Leanne, do you have any things that you want to add? I was just going to say that, Ruth, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you, and I look forward to getting to know you even more. Me too, Leanne. Thank you so much, and thank you, Lars. Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you all for listening to me. You know, I, you know, I'm as a person who doesn't sleep much, I listen to... Um, BBC at the wee hours because they have, you know, such a different time zone than we do. And whenever the interviewer says um, thank you to the speaker, the speaker always says lovely things like, thank you for the invitation or thank you for your company. The English are so, so different. Anyway, so thank you all for your company and for listening to me. <laughs> I look forward to meeting more of our of our you know feedback community i'm so happy to meet you leanne and i'm always happy to see you lars that's great i forgot to say 
because it's such an important part of my identity. I'm a home cheese maker. I make cheese, and when and my beloved Australian cheese making teacher always says, "Keep calm and make cheese." And she One sent it to me, and it's delicious. The and the bread, all of it was fantastic. Well, it's um, it promotes healing. It works well in conjunction with neurofeedback, and stirring the vat works well in conjunction with neurofeedback to regulate my nervous system. <laughs> but with that, I'll say what my neurofeedback, Australian beloved neurofeedback teacher always says when he ends every chat. See you next time. <laughs>